with a glittering crown upon my brow, we sang. And the Bible communicates to us that we will cast those crowns as objects of worship at the feet of our God and King. And I wonder if we say that we would take every precious thing and cast it at the feet of Jesus Christ. Well, I, I would venture a proposal that Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, will better equip us to see crowns as things just to be used for worshiping our Lord and King. Turn your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Lord will bless the reading of his word in his congregation. Could you please be seated? Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. October 1st, Hebrews 1, a little over a year after starting our study in the Old Testament Pentateuch in Exodus. We come today to an introduction. This introduction to Jesus is a definitive conclusion that Jesus is the final word of God. Jesus, what is your redemptive story? What is your unfolding plan in all of your history? And the last word that the Father would speak is Jesus. He is the final word of God. So the question is, why come to Hebrews? Let me read from F.F. F. Bruce, who said this. One of the glories of the Bible is the way God takes a particular situation involving a particular group of people and uses that to speak with the greatest relevance to people of all kinds, in all times, in all places. The book of Hebrews provides a great example of this principle. Written by an unknown apostolic leader to a group of Jewish Christians facing persecution in the mid-first century. The words of this book speak to Christians everywhere about standing firm in Jesus Christ, end quote. Hebrews, therefore, will tell us why to press on, because Christ is supreme. How to press on, through Christ, who is supreme. And seeing 
the fruitfulness of that dependence in those who have gone before us. The title I've given for this morning is Jesus is Better. It's the title for the series, as you'll see on the screens this morning. The title for this series is simply put, Jesus is in fact better. I I thought about changing the title to the last word because of the irony of the first sermon on Hebrews being a sermon titled, The Last Word. In fact, that's what we are hearing at introduction. Jesus is the last word. Let's spend a moment uh, talking about the context of Hebrews. I I told the elders this week at our meeting, I said I I don't have any intention of trying to labor over the, the ageless debate of who wrote Hebrews. Perhaps you have a theory, and and they are often respectable, but I I don't intend to unpack exactly who the author is, but here's what I can tell you. The author is a person who has thought long and hard about the Christian's approach to the Old Testament. What he writes has been thoroughly thought out. The author has a line of argument and knows the end at the very beginning. The author is a force to be reckoned with when it comes to early Christian theology. He offers to the reader the clearest discussion of the Christian approach to the Old Testament of any New Testament book. As we study it, it will be clear that this author loves Jesus deeply. I hope you'll hear this author convey a deep love for Jesus and that your love for Jesus will abound. This author thinks that Jesus is amazing, extraordinary, magnificent, wonderful, simply put, better. Maybe maybe you'd sit here right now and you would say, that sounds familiar. I felt like that once. That Jesus is magnificent wonderful, better. And maybe you found yourself recently kind of with your proverbial nose to the grindstone. You're doing your Christian life because you know it's what you're supposed to do. You're serving others. You're reading. You're praying. Because you know it's what's right. But you hear that this author loves Jesus deeply and confesses him extraordinary, magnificent, wonderful, and better, and you think, I want to hear from him. When when was the book written? Just quickly, this letter is written in the first century, as all the letters of the canon are. Hebrews is being quoted by Clement of Rome by 96 AD. There is reason to make a strong argument that Hebrews is written prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The bigger question is not necessarily who wrote it, I don't think. We know from chapter 2 verse 3 that the Spirit of God delivered the truth. The bigger question is not when was it written. That's not an imperative question. It's helpful. I think one of the bigger questions is who is it written to? And we can't glean everything we need from the title. The title is an editorial note, not necessarily part of its original inscription. 
So we have to be careful. The title may simply have reflected the editor's impression that the people addressed here must be Jewish in their background because so much of what is going to be said in Hebrews is going to instruct a religious group of people known as Jews. However, the whole argument of the letter is laid out against the backdrop of the Old Testament. Considerable familiarities with the Levitical ritual and a deep interest in it. So, it's reasonable to say that this author does have at least religious people in mind, if not specifically Jewish Christians in mind. And the book will lay out with several, seven, in fact, definitive statements that Jesus is better. You say, well, what's he better than? Well, the book is going to lay it out this way in these seven confessions. Jesus is better than the prophets. That's today. Jesus is better than angels. Lord willing, that's next week. Jesus is better than Moses and Joshua. I think that'll be week three. Kidding. It's going to be like week 30. (laughs) Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Therefore, Jesus is a better guarantee of assurance. And this will all conclude with the fact that Jesus is better than everything in a benediction in chapter 13. So this morning, I want to simply expound that Jesus is the final revelation of what must be known of God. Jesus is the final revelation. And then Jesus is the full radiance of God's own glory. I have to confess, as I came to this text, you heard as I read it, we've become accustomed to reading one full chapter or even sometimes two chapters of Exodus. And we read four verses. And then we sat down and you thought, well, where's the rest of reading today? I felt a little bit like that when I studied this. I I looked at the opening paragraph and I thought, okay, there's the break. Uh, Jesus is better than the prophets. That's expressly verses one through three. And then verse four transitions into the next better, which is angels. Okay. Which, let me say quickly, if you have any uh, Jehovah's Witness friends or neighbors, next week will be helpful. If they want to come or maybe you want to share the, the recording with them. Jesus is not just another created angel of God. He's better than angels. So, these first three verses. And I thought, okay, well, just three verses. Wow, that's a fraction of what we've been doing in Exodus. And then I started writing the sermon. And I realized there's something like 12 sermons here. And there, there are some confessions in these three verses that you absolutely hang all of your confidence on. There is one statement that we're going to look at today, which quite frankly summarizes all of the testimony of Jesus Christ as it is in Scripture. Jesus is better. Let's start with Jesus is the final revelation of truth. In verses 1 and 2, and I would pray for the Lord to lead us as students of his word. Let's pray. Father, uh, the truth here is magnificent. Uh, The truth here is a, a challenge to our mental dexterity. The truth here is a a weight 
of responsibility for me to clearly articulate. And so we pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would instruct us in the righteousness of this confession that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is better. Thank you for being a God in whom we can pray and trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is the final revelation of truth. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. What an introduction. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It's in right there. Long ago, here's, here's what we just read. Eternal God, with faithful consistency, has made himself known to his creatures in personal way. This, right away, vaults us from the smoke over the tabernacle to God has interacted with his people from a long time ago in personal ways. Not just leaving us little hints, but telling us truth about himself. The opening paragraph of Hebrews could be considered the doctrinal apex of the entire New Testament. Let's look first, historically. For a long time, God's communication came through his servants that are known as prophets. Moses acted like a prophet for a while. He would come to the people and he would say, God has said, Moses becomes a prophet that way. I'm not sure what would have been more significant if, in fact, we have a, an ethnic Hebrew audience. Long ago and for a long time, God spoke to your people. I wonder what the inkling would have been. That's right, to us. We were significant. Instead of God spoke, Romans says that the very gift of God revealing to them had actually become a stumbling block. 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8 says the very gift of God, the very cornerstone laid in Zion became to them a stumbling block. We won't take time to look back and see how the Hebrews always received the prophets, but it wasn't always a welcome reception. The prophetic revelation, however, did come from God to people in various ways. God did prophesy. There's mighty works of mystery, judgment, that God sent through the prophets. He made known through the prophets what he was doing. Prophets came and told the people, God is up to this. Through the prophets, the people were admitted into the secret counsel of God's plans in advance. God spoke through storms and thunders to Moses and to Elijah. Prophets were, in numerous ways, in the original testimony, God's messenger. However, Job chapter 26, verse 14 says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power we want to understand. And so, yes, God spoke to his people 
a long time, consistently, faithfully, personally, lovingly, but Jesus is better. The special revelation has not just been given to the prophets or through the prophets, but mostly through the Son. We could say that there are two stages here of revelation. God saying to us, this is who I am, this is what I'm like, and this is what I'm doing. God saying to us, and that comes in two stages. In fact, if you would like, it's kind of simple to just break it down into the Old and the New Testament. In the Old or the First Testament, God often spoke through prophets. But the New Testimony or the New Testament is regarding the Son. And it is revealed to us by the Son himself. So from the Old and the New Testament, if you take your Bible and you look at the Old Testament and then the New Testament, I want you to understand that there is a progressing revelation. If, if all you read was the First Testament, you would have a semblance of the truth of God. We spent over a year studying one book of the Old Testament and seeing from that one book the majesty of Yahweh. But there's more revelation to be received. That revelation is the better revelation of Jesus. Jesus is better. Divine revelation is progressive, but not, listen closely. I'm going to read this, but I, I want to say this first. There might be a temptation in you to say something like, the Old Testament is really nice, but what we really need most is the New Testament. And that's not the point of saying Jesus is better than Old Testament prophets, okay? So I want you to understand, we're not in some way saying, oh, in progressive revelation, the parts you read last are the best parts, and the parts you read first are the least significant parts. Here's what I do mean. Progressive revelation is not a revelation from less true to more true. Not from less worthy to more worthy. Not from less mature to more mature. The progression of revelation that we have in the word is one from promise to fulfillment. That is clear in Hebrews. Hebrews is going to tell us that all the things we were, we were made to know from the first testament were things that are fulfilled in Christ, the better. All the successive acts and modes of revelation from the prophets add up to a fullness of what God had to say, which is Jesus, the Christ. His, quote-unquote, word was not completely enunciated until Christ came. Once Christ came, the word of God was finally spoken, but not apart from Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 20. In Christ, all the promises of God meet their yes, which seals their fulfillment as a guarantee and evokes in the recipient the precious response, amen. The final word to which we respond, yes, everything about Exodus 
is Jesus. Amen. He is the final word of revelation from the Father. Now there's a statement here that leads our English interpretation to think in terms of chronology. It is in the last days. Look at the first words of verse 2. But in these last days. So it suggests to us that a long time ago was like this, more recently is like this. However, in these last days is not meant to mean more recently, but in its weight it is meant to say, in its original communication meant to say, once and for all the consummation of the age. And all of the words that came to us by the prophets are punctuated in the word Jesus. All the things come to their conclusion. All the revelation progresses to its pinnacle, Jesus. God's spokespeople, the prophets, his servants, proclaimed to mankind a message which reaches its climax in Jesus is better. The story of divine revelation is a story leading up to Christ. There is no progression past that. So not only does every Old Testament prophet say something that's pointing to Jesus, there is no revelation of Jesus pointing to anything else. It comes to its conclusion in Jesus. He is to us the final word of God. Would you turn your Bibles back to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2 explains much of what we mean by this. Philippians chapter 2, and look with me please at verse 4. Calling all of his people not to look to Elijah, Isaiah, or Jeremiah, but let each of you, Philippians 2, 4, look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God. He did not hang on to equality with God, like a thing he had to steal, but emptied himself by becoming a servant, being born in the likeness of men, found in human form. In so doing, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. To the end that, at Jesus' name, as the final word of God, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From eternity past, Jesus is better. From eternity past, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 3, from eternity past, Jesus is God's Redeemer. Jesus is the final word, 
But Jesus is not simply a word. The Bible tells us that, it, or the, uh, uh, there's a popular phrase that tells us that a picture is worth, what is it? A thousand words. Jesus is not only the punctuating word, Jesus is the picture. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Let's look at the second half of verse two and verse three. Whom, this Jesus, he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There are, in those two verses, really one and a half, seven statements about Christ's supremacy in one and a half verses. And each one of them would make a wonderful sermon. Seven statements. Maybe some of you have an inquiring mind like I do. You go, how many? Seven. And you think, all right, come on, move on. Don't get caught up in that. In fact, I think it's purposeful. Seven is a number that we know through Scripture, the number of completion, perfection. And I think the writer is pointing out here, as he does in verses 5 through 14, seven more things about how Jesus is better than angels. I think he's given us seven here, as he'll give us seven next, to tell us that Jesus is the completion of perfection, the supremacy. Seven statements. Make it clear. Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. I'm going to go through the seven. I have to go through them quickly. I thought about it this morning. I was walking up the sidewalk, coming to my office, and I thought, our minds are not very strong. And they're dulled and they're weakened by all sorts of things. And this list of seven surpasses my capacity. And so I'm so dependent on the Spirit of God to reveal these truths to me. Seven things. Wonderful things. Let's walk through them. God has appointed Jesus, the Christ, first heir of all things. He's a king. He is the king's son. These words no doubt echo Psalm 2.8, addressing the Lord's anointed, proclaiming by God, Jesus, to be the king. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. He is the heir of all. Number two, it was through Jesus that God made the universe. This is true in uh, uh, Genesis, this is true in John, this is true in Colossians. It was through the word that God made the universe. The whole of space and time. The affirmation that God brought this universe into existence by the Son. John 1, 3. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 16. All things were created through him. And for him. Number three, Christ is the radiance of God's glory. This, this involves his identification 
with God's wisdom. God's wisdom. There, there's an ancient book of wisdom which predates the time of Christ that the author here probably was familiar with. It gives this definition of radiance. It says this. The radiance of God is said to be a breath of the power of God. A pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. A reflection of eternal light. An unspotted mirror of the working of God and an image of his goodness. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the glow on Moses' face. He is the exact imprint of the essence of God. Fourth, the impression, the ring in the hot wax. Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father. The Son bears the very stamp of his nature. The word, exact imprint, is the word character. That's the Greek pronunciation. Character. That's how it sounds. You're like, I don't know what that word means. It means character. Jesus is exactly as the Father in character. Just as the glory of the Father is real in the Son, the glory of the Son is real in the Father. This is called hypostasis. It's shared nature, substance, and essence. It's beautiful. What God, the Father, essentially is, is known in Christ. Exact imprint. He's king. He is messenger, prophet. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Paul wrote that same thing in Colossians. He upholds the universe. Not like Atlas. You've seen Atlas? Atlas is standing there. He's big and strong. He's got the globe on his back. That's weird. Doesn't really mean much. Not like Atlas holding the the cosmos or the world on his shoulders, but as one who sustains and carries out all things toward their designed course. Hand in glove. Apart from Jesus, nothing that is, is. And it is now. But apart from Jesus, it would not be for yet another moment. What if Jesus just became distracted? What if Jesus just stopped thinking of you? You would not be. What if Jesus for one moment lost his mindfulness of you in that seat in this room? You would not be. He is at the moment upholding you by the word of his power. Six. He has made purification for our sins. 
we move from the cosmic function of our redeeming king being creator and sustaining all in it. And we move to the priest. The priest made purification for our sins. The Son of God has accomplished what was otherwise impossible. Made vicarious atonement for our sin. I could not live apart from faith and one of those beautiful concluding statements of Christ on the cross, it is finished. I could not live. Not as I do. I doubt, likely, that I would be able to do what I do as a a father, a friend, certainly a pastor. If I did not believe that Jesus meant what he said, it is done. If, If I would allow myself the perversion of false doctrine to think it's almost done, I would be paralyzed. I would never think that I was adequate to fulfill whatever was left. And it would be paralyzing. And I come to the Word and I read this (laughs) wonderful, definitive, life-shaping promise in the third verse of the first chapter. And I think, how are we going to get through this? Jesus has completed what was otherwise impossible. Friend, maybe you're Maybe you're discouraged because you're not convinced it's done. You say, well, what I think the the interpretation of that should be is Jesus made possible the purification for my sins, but not actually the purification. I must be responsible for something. The next thing that's said about Jesus answers that potential concern. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus sits in the throne at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is one of the earliest affirmations of the Christian faith. Listen to Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Paul says in Ephesians 4.10, he ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Philippians 2.9, which we read a moment ago. God has highly exalted and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Significance of Christ being a seated high priest. You have to turn your Bible ahead to Hebrews chapter 10, please. 
Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. What does it mean to have a priest who's done? It means everything. Everything. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. The word of the Lord says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. It's true, right? We just studied Exodus. You're going to come in, you're going to do this, you're going to leave. Then you're going to come back, you're going to do this again. Then you're going to leave. You're going to come back, you're going to do this again. Then you're going to leave, you're going to come back, do this again. Every priest does that, in and out, in and out, in and out, doing the work, repeating the work, repeating the work. Which, end of verse 11, never take away sins. Oh, Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is a wonderful sevenfold affirmation that Jesus is all in all prophet, priest, and king. He is prophet through whom God has spoken his word. He is priest who has accomplished the work of purification and once and for all completed it being seated at the right hand of God. He is king, enthroned in honor and majesty on high. Sevenfold. Glorious prophet, priest, and king who has definitively accomplished atonement for sin. My question is this. Why would a person look anywhere other than Jesus for atonement? Why would a person look anywhere other than Jesus for hope? Why look anywhere other than Jesus for assurance or help? Why would a person do that? Why would a person try to fortify their confidence in Jesus with anything else? Just just take, take something else and make it, make it sort of a buckler. Make it sort of a, a, a buttress of your confidence. Like, yes, I believe in Jesus, but it's really sloppy. I'll fortify it with, I mean, what? All I can do at that point is become really cynical and say foolish things like church attendance and teaching Sunday school. It just sounds, sounds dumb. It sounds sarcastic when I say it, but it's true. Where else would anyone look? Let me walk you through where this author is headed. So keep, keep your Bible moving. Let's go to Hebrews 7. Does the testimony of the word of the Lord say that he made purification for sin? It's five words. It's five words. My greatest fear now is that you've been so overexposed to them that they don't matter much. Five words. He 
What does that mean to you? Made? Does that mean something? Purification? Does that matter? For sin? What does that mean? Hebrews 7.26 For it was indeed fitting that we would have this high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily. First for his own sin Then for the sin of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. Sin. See, Hebrews 7, 26 says that sin is universal. The high priests, they had to first offer sacrifice for their own sin before they could minister for anyone else's. But the New Testament says that Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifice for himself. He could be for sinners because he was not himself sinful. So sin is universal. It is the infection that permeates all of us. It is the agent of death whereby we see clearly that we are infected as all die in Adam. Hebrews 9, please. Verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, There's a greater, more perfect tent. Yeah, that's right. Moses saw it and he had to build one like it. Jesus entered there to that holy place and made atonement. I don't know. I was raised very conservative Baptist, but somehow that makes me very charismatic. Verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy place Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus, securing an eternal redemption. My heart delights in in the definitiveness of that statement. Those two verses. My my worship is, is propelled by the definitiveness of that. And um, I confess that sometimes the enthusiasm for that definitiveness has maybe muddied the clarity of it. There's a word here the author uses, which is accurate translation. 
Jesus made. He's not making. There is no priest demanding he return again to the cross to suffer once more, which is what so many of our neighbors who are living according to the instruction of the Roman Catholic Church believe takes place at every communion service. That a a bell will ring and the priest will beckon the Redeemer to come back again to the cross and make atonement for the people who are going to come and receive communion. And that blatantly, blatantly denies this confession. He made purification for sin. And it, it, it takes the definitiveness of Christ's atonement and makes it something that is good intention and, and goodwill toward men. My Savior went into the holy place before God the Father and said, for Rob, I've made purification. Do you understand the definitive nature of the plan of redemption? Like, do you understand that my guilt in it was way before I ever was? And my being delivered from it was way before I ever was? Do you understand the weight of those two things? In Adam all fell. I wasn't in the garden. I fell. That's not fair. I wasn't there. I probably would have done it, but no, I can't even say it. I would have done exactly the same thing. I'm guilty. I wasn't there. Because of what they did, I'm guilty. Don't object, friend. Don't object. Because there's something else coming. And you weren't there either. You didn't walk into the holy tent, not made with hands. You didn't offer yourself a sacrifice before God the Father. You weren't there either. But it happened. And it's definitive. And I love the definitiveness of Christ's work. And by God's maturing, I hope to be able to say it with clarity and patience. Hebrews 9.25, please. He made purification for sin. Hebrews 9.25. My high priest, your high priest, was not to offer himself, verse 25, repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood on his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He says on the cross, I have put away sin. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once 
to bear the sins of many will appear before us a second time. Not to deal with sin. He made purification for sin. Not coming back to deal with sin, but to save those eagerly waiting for his return. Seven magnificent statements. Expounding on that one. Jesus is better. He made purification for sin. And before I go into my last my conclusion, what else would a person look to? How, how could we possibly look to anything else? How could we, who are mostly religious in context, how could we come and say, oh, yeah, Jesus, and, I mean, just come to the point where you despise the word and. Because whatever you were going to put after that, Hebrews is going to erase it. But Jesus and, come to a point where you say, Jesus is better. Whatever the and was going to be, it's just going to be, it's going to miss the mark. Church, what would we allow to share in the glory of Christ? He's better. So to close, this was the last point I wrote out. I thought, these three verses just tell us the trajectory of this letter. And they tell us Jesus is the first and he's the last. And I started thinking about all the ways where Jesus is the first word and the last word. Can I walk you through them in closing? Jesus is the first word and the last word. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus is that word. The alpha, he's the first word. God says to us, to people, his creatures, Enjoy everything I've given. That's Jesus. That is not just fruit. That is not just landscape, plants. That is not just breath. Enjoy Jesus. More clearly, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right in the beginning, Jesus is the word. I will eventually crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus. Jesus is the final word because his resurrection is the first of the new creation. Jesus is the final priest. After making purification for sin, he sat down. It was done. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. John sees the word, the better. And he says, and this rings more true right now than maybe sometimes. John says, when I saw him, I fell down like dead. You've, you've heard me read about him. And maybe you think, oh, feel like a little weak in the knees right now. John saw him. His eyes are on fire. His hair was white. His feet radiated. And John fell down like he was dead. I fell at his feet, but he laid his hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first. I am Genesis. I am the word that brought it into being. 
I am the word that sustained it. I am what you were to delight in. I am the one that was going to crush the head of your adversary. I'm that one, the beginning. And now all the prophets spoke revelation that progressed to me. He says, I'm the first. And he says, I'm the last. Whatever there's been, it was leading to this, Jesus. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And in it, I have the keys that do everything. This introduction is a definitive statement about the last word of all things, Jesus. This little introduction is a synopsis of all of the New Testament regarding Jesus. These seven statements of perfection tell us without doubt, trust Jesus. Hebrews tells us why we press on. Because the surpassing supremacy of knowing Jesus Hebrews tells us how we press on. Through faith in Christ, like faith we've seen in others before us. Jesus is better. I thought yesterday I was driving, and I thought, in a sermon like this one, I... um, I'm really thankful for it. But I thought, what about the person who says, and how does that exaltation of Jesus affect me? And in my head, I have to walk that back and go, what? Like, what? Why do you need that explanation? But I understand it. I have to walk that back and say, there is a myriad of things coming your way. And if your confession of Jesus isn't like this, it won't survive. You literally will be in danger of making your very faith shipwreck if this is not the anthem of your faith. So this text, what does it mean to you? It means in believing it, you can keep on being a Christian. In doubting it, In disregarding it, there is no Christian faith apart from this. This is Jesus. Now we get an opportunity to come and celebrate that with what we call the Lord's Supper. We celebrate it in memorial Jesus, once and for all, went into the tent, not made with hands, and said, this is my body and this is my blood. This is the new covenant. That's wonderful. We not only remember it, we proclaim it. Friend, you've come here today and you need someone to tell you Jesus has died in your place and he's coming again. And you feel like you're in exile wandering through the wilderness without anything to eat or drink. And we're going to proclaim to each other this is how we survive.